As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grey History. This episode, titled The Parisian Powder Keg, explores Paris on the eve of its most famous revolt. A city gripped by the darkness of hunger. A city energised by the increasingly radical press. A city fearful of a rumoured coup d'etat. And a city capable of, as we shall see, one hell of a revolt. So without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 11, The Parisian Powder Keg. Gunpowder. It's in the search for gunpowder that one of, if not the most famous singular event to the French Revolution occurs. The Storming of the Bastille. The Storming of the Bastille is still celebrated today in France, and the event no doubt deserves the celebration. Without the Storming of the Bastille and the successful general revolt in Paris that accompanies it, the revolution could have taken a very different direction, could have obtained a very different outcome. But for storytellers like me, the fact that the Bastille was stormed by the people of Paris for its gunpowder offers a very convenient metaphor. Immediately prior to the revolt, Paris itself was like a powder keg. A powder keg waiting to explode. A powder keg whose fuse was lit by the king on the 11th of July, just two weeks after all the orders of the Estates General began to meet as one formalised National Assembly. When the king finally did light the keg, we witnessed one hell of an explosion. But the reasons why the Parisian powder keg contained such an impressive blast, the reasons why France's major metropolis descended into revolt, has everything to do with the ingredients that were within that powder keg. By the first week of July, Paris was waiting to explode for three key reasons. The first two are ingredients we're already familiar with, but have altered slightly. The first key ingredient to the Parisian powder keg was the price of bread. Since the disastrous thunderstorm of July 1788, the scarcity of bread and the associated impacts on household economics had been destabilising the nation. Throughout the kingdom, in the four months preceding the fall of the Bastille, more than 300 accounts of violence and disorder were recorded due to the bread crisis. The situation in the capital was no better, The lethal rebellion riots which had hit Paris just weeks before the Estates General may have been the bloodiest of the bread-related disturbances, but they were by no means the last. As the National Assembly began their first meetings, violence around grain stockpiles was becoming increasingly common. In fact, so common that troops had to be posted at customs barriers and marketplaces in Paris just to keep the peace. 
Additionally, soldiers had to chaperone convoys of grain and flour entering the city in order to ensure its safe arrival. These were by no means extra-conservative precautions. They were necessary and reactionary measures. In the on at the end of June, mobs had seized the customs barriers and had forcibly lowered the price of grain in what I can only presume was a meets-back-on-the-menu-boys-like moment. How the Urukai knew what a menu was is something that I've never understood, but I digress. The point is, is that hunger was causing all sorts of problems. A newspaper that was covering the crisis wrote this account of the situation after the Bastille had fallen. The nearer July 14th came, the greater became the shortage of food. The crowd, besieging every baker's shop, received a parsimonious distribution of bread, always with warnings about possible shortages next day. Fears were redoubled by the complaints of people who had spent the whole day waiting at the baker's door without receiving anything. There was frequent bloodshed. Food was snatched from the hand as people came to blows. Workshops were deserted. Workmen and craftsmen wasted their time in quarrelling, in trying to get hold of even small amounts of food, and, by losing working time in queuing, found themselves unable to pay for the next day's supply. That first-hand report encapsulates the violent, desperate, dire situation a hungry and miserable Paris found itself in during the first week of July. That description of people fighting in the streets for measly parcels of bread sounds like a modern-day failed state, or like that scene from Ice Age where the dodos and heroes fight over that last melon. I digress. The situation was undeniably bleak. If that wasn't enough, that same week, the first week of July, also required the settlement of debts from the previous few months. With so much of the poor's income being redirected to food, the bread crisis impacted more than just people's stomachs. Some members of the city's lower classes were driven from their homes in mass, having spent all their money on food and now unable to pay their landlords and creditors. Those not homeless might have been penniless, meaning their acquisition of food was in doubt. With food and shelter either gone or in jeopardy, both Maslow's hierarchy and civil society were fast losing their foundational stones. It didn't stop at hunger or homelessness, however. Perhaps the most dangerous aspect of this bread crisis was not the certain consequences, but the uncertain causes. For most of the third estate, the cause of their predicament was not bad weather or poor agricultural practices. It was instead something far worse, something far more sinister. It was instead a royal conspiracy. It was no secret that some members of the court and privileged orders resented the National Assembly. Many suspected a royal coup within the first weeks of its creation, especially after the king had initially tried to reverse the Assembly's creation on the 23rd of June. With a crackdown supposedly imminent, it was a logical conclusion that if the traitors within the nobility were conspiring against the people's representatives, the National Assembly, and if they were conspiring against the people's messiah, Jacques Necker, well, then these traitors would naturally be conspiring against the people themselves. The counter-revolutionaries were supposedly doing this by stockpiling grain and starving the citizens of Paris. According to the bookseller Sebastian Hardy, the populace of Paris believed 
that the princes were hoarding grain deliberately in order to more effectively trip up Monsieur Necker, whom they are so keen to overthrow. Whether, and poor agricultural practices be damned, the cause was the scheming elites. No proof required. It reminds me of populist politicians today who blame the loss of manufacturing jobs on poor trade policies and yet seem completely oblivious to the automated robots which have actually been the primary replacement of domestic workers. Anyway, we digress. Then, like now, the people knew the problem to their woes. Corruption and conspiracy in the highest levels of government. They also knew the solution. If one wanted bread, one must eliminate the counter-revolutionaries. One must purge the corruption eradicate the self-interested parasites occupying the positions of power. This oversimplified but all-too-believable equation, one which equates high bread prices to counter-revolutionary conspiracy, will be seen time and time again in this revolution. Time and time again, the equation fails to balance. No matter how many heads fall to the guillotine, no matter how many governments are toppled or factions eliminated, bread is not forthcoming, only blood. But for the time being, that math is irrelevant. All that matters is the hunger of the people of Paris. The second ingredient in the Parisian powder keg was the press. Now, the press had been essentially free for some time. Censorship went out the door back during the revolt of the Parlements, and the volume and audacity of political pamphlets had only increased since. The deadlock of the Estates General, and then the creation of the National Assembly, unsurprisingly only accelerated the growth and radicalism of the press. Arthur Young wrote in his diary about the increasing boldness of political pamphlets and the infectious rebellion they were fostering. This account was dated on the 9th of June, just more than a week before the Commons declared itself the National Assembly. The business going forward at present in the pamphlet shops of Paris is incredible. I went to the Palais Royal to see what new things were published and to procure a catalogue of all. Every hour produces something new. 13 came out today, 16 yesterday and 92 last week. We think sometimes that Durette's or Stockdale shops at London were crowded, but they are mere deserts compared to Destines and some others here in which one can scarcely squeeze from door to the counter. This spirit of reading political tracts, they say, spreads into the provinces, so that all the presses of France are equally employed. Nineteen-twentieths of the productions are in favour of liberty, and commonly violent against the clergy and nobility. I have today bespoke many of this description, that have reputation, but inquiring for such as had appeared on the other side of the question, To my astonishment, I find there are but two or three that have enough merit to be known. It is not wonderful that while the press teams with the most levelling and even seditious principles that if put into execution would overturn the monarchy, nothing in reply appears, and not the least step is taken by the court to restrain this extreme licentiousness of publication. It is easy to conceive the spirit that must thus be raised among the people." What Arthur Young was describing is why the press and political agitation more broadly was the second key ingredient to the Parisian Grand Revolt. 
Not only were publications becoming more frequent, but they were becoming more radical. It's these pamphlets spreading the conspiracy about the nobility hoarding grain. These pamphlets that spread rumours of an impending royal coup. These pamphlets which were attacking the privileged orders and calling for dramatic change. The most radical of pamphlets were slowly yet increasingly proclaiming the need for civil war, the necessity of bloodletting, the required national purge of the parasitic privileged orders. While the vast majority of the press was not this radical yet, and I stress yet, the increasing radicalisation of the press, even at its fringes, and the public forums these pamphlets were debated in, was significant. This evolution was creating the ideological resistance and politically charged environment necessary for a general revolt. Paired with severe hunger, it was a delicious recipe for disaster. Historian Charlier Matthews recounts his interpretation of Arthur Young's journal entry and the impact the radicalised press had on creating the necessary foundations for a revolutionary eruption. I'll also let him depict a different Paris to the one that you and I are used to. Paris in 1789 was by no means the beautiful city of today. Its streets were narrow, crooked and dirty. Its population was without community of spirit, and its government was inefficient and venal. During the past few months of want, it had attracted crowds of beggars and desperate men from all parts of France, and its lower classes were incomparably brutalised. Order had been kept with difficulty, and the fatal lack of a police force of a modern city was evidenced in the impunity with which a mob could sack a great establishment like that of the papermaker Revelion. Morris may have looked on its character with two puritanical eyes, but his words are certainly explicit. Now quoting Morris, Paris is perhaps as wicked as a spot as exists. Incest, murder, bestiality, fraud, rapine, oppression, baseness, cruelty are common. Back to Matthews. Yet there was no place in all France where the new philosophy had struck so deep or had grown so radical, and the priests of the new cult the apostles of the newly discovered rites, were the journalists. Never was a social contagion more spread by pamphlets and newspapers and books. Good-natured, philosophical, agricultural Arthur Young was astonished at the volume of printed matter. On the 9th of June, 1789, he went to the Palais Royal, the rendezvous of booksellers, travellers, newsmongers and scamps, to procure a catalogue of the new publications. He discovered that every hour produced something new, 13 had come out on the day of his visit, 16 on the day before, and in the preceding week, 92. These political tracts, he discovered also, found their way throughout all the country, and 1920ths of all these publications, he declares, were in favour of liberty and were commonly violent against the clergy and the nobility. If journals were suppressed, they appeared under a new name. Never was there greater evidence of the power of inflammatory journalism, Paris was not only full of patriotic enthusiasm and the champion of the assembly, it was fairly alive with criminals, reformers, agitators, demagogues and fanatics. In consequence, it was increasingly the prey of that insane suspicion which seizes a community that is superficially full of wit but fundamentally is without moral scruples and carelessly intent on destroying inherited authority. Historian Matthews clearly held a distaste for Paris and the free press she harboured. Nevertheless, 
one can see the clear impact the city's publications were having on its occupants. The agitators and the journalists were undoubtedly fostering an environment that helped to facilitate revolution. There is something specific I want to pick up, though, in Matthew's comments, as it touches the third and final ingredient to the Parisian powder keg. What Matthews describes as insane suspicion, but what others might describe as legitimate concern. I am not, however, talking about the conspiracy of grain being stockpiled by the counter-revolutionaries. That's child's play compared to what I'm thinking of. I'm talking about the main treasonous plot that occupied the minds of Paris and the deputies of the Assembly. The rumoured royal coup d'etat that supposedly was being planned by that same aggrieved faction. The plot which was meant to suppress the National Assembly once and for all. The leaders of this conspiracy were supposedly the Queen and the King's brother, the Comte d'Artois. Never recovering from scandals before the revolution, the foreign whore, Marie Antoinette, was paired with the evil Count, the Comte d'Artois. While Antoinette's terrible public image came from the actions of others, namely the sexual labels and the diamond necklace affair, the Count's horrible relationship with the public was all his own making. The Comte d'Artois was considered an enemy of the people for his role in writing the Memoir of the Princes back in December. The prince had then called for the protection of institutionalised privileges and attacked the third's demands for doubled representation and voting by head. These two royals made a great pair of public enemies, and an even greater pair of lovers, if you were to believe the underground press. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. By the end of the first week of July, the public believed this dynamic duo was drafting secretive and counter-revolutionary schemes. In fact, many members of the press and the National Assembly had been suspicious of a counter-revolutionary strike for some time. The King had never really conceded the National Assembly's true legitimacy. After all, he had tried to disband the Assembly, reinstall the traditional Estates General 
and warned all the deputies, in no uncertain terms, that he would go on alone if they didn't get back in their box. It was only when it became clear that force would be required to suppress the body and that he lacked said force that the king conceded to the assembly's existence. Thus, without the king's enthusiastic and public backing, the idea that the evil queen and her associates in court were scheming against the people shifted quickly from a possibility to a probability and then to an outright certainty. It took just days for the evidence to start appearing. Troops were arriving from the frontiers, 20,000 of them. The royal government had called to Paris and Versailles new regiments under the pretense of maintaining law and order. More than 15 regiments had been called up and no one was buying the law and order line. It was well known that the local troops, particularly the French guards, could not be relied upon to suppress the people. The ambassadors of America and Saxony had ridden as much in the last week of June, and desertion had continued to weaken the army's strength. The troops from the frontiers were different, however. Many of these men spoke German instead of French. While technically from France, they seemed to be more foreign than French to many Parisians. These troops, without their connections to the city of Paris, would be more willing to set it ablaze, more willing to suppress the French National Assembly, more willing to please the German-speaking Queen, more willing to kill innocent, hungry Parisians in a bloody crackdown that would rob the defenceless of their possessions. Or so the theory went. By the 8th of July, Mirabeau was sounding the alarm as deputations from the Assembly begged the king to withdraw the troops. Mirabeau proclaimed to his companions in the National Assembly that the preparations for war were obvious to anyone and filled every heart with anger. It was this apparent conspiracy against the National Assembly and Paris that was key to creating the Parisian powder keg. Not only were people hungry, not only were people politicised, but people feared for their lives, for their loved ones, for whatever property they had remaining which they hadn't had to sell to pay for bread. As historian Francois Mignet summed up, The perils that threatened the representatives of the nation, and itself, and the scarcity of food disposed it to insurrection. With an apparent military suppression, seemingly days away at the hands of German-speaking troops and mercenaries, Paris was a powder keg, waiting to explode. And on the 11th of July, two weeks after the Estates General officially became the National Assembly, the King was kind enough to light the fuse. That fuse came in the form of Necker. Despite the failings of the Estates General and his inability to first propose and then reclaim its agenda, the People's Messiah maintained huge popularity. This was for two reasons. The first reason was to do with bread. The second, how he responded to the royal session on the 23rd when the king tried to disband the assembly and return the deputies to the traditional format of the Estates General. Regarding food, Necker had used his own personal fortune to help feed the mouths of Paris as the bread crisis tightens its grip around the city's throat. If that didn't send his approval rating sky high, the millionaire's popularity increased once again as he became one of the few revolutionary leaders or government officials to call for the reintroduction of price controls on bread. A policy popular with the masses, but unpopular with the National Assembly, who believed in the merits of a free market economy. 
his popularity reinforced by his positions on helping to feed the poor, Necker's standing within the National Assembly had climbed in response to the royal session. It's debated whether Necker was fired or resigned on the morning of the 23rd of June, but for whichever reason, he didn't attend the royal session. His absence, as the king tried and failed to suppress the assembly through his proclamations, earned him much respect amongst the assembly. On the same day, Necker was either persuaded by the king, the queen or the mob, who had found out he was about to leave Versailles, to instead stay on as minister. Choose your own history, make a combination if you want. The point is, is that Necker remained popular with both the assembly and the public, and he remained on as minister. But... Importantly, as seen with his resignation forward slash dismissal, he continued to be loathed by the court. And that second part is critical. Neither the king nor the queen had wanted to recall him to the ministry, and by the time of the tennis court oath, it was clear that he was being shunned by the court once more. He was, after all, a foreigner, a Protestant, and a commoner. And to the queen and the Comte d'Artois, It was Necker who was the source of so much of this unfolding chaos, the key catalyst of the creation of the National Assembly, which had usurped so much royal power. Artois did not mix his words. He told Necker that he considered him a foreign traitor who should be hung for his crimes. Artois wasn't just all talk. Behind the scenes, members of the court were pushing the king for Necker's dismissal and arrest. But this movement against Necker had been ongoing for a while, even before the deputies of the Third Estate went rogue. On the 26th of April, a week before the estate general commenced, the Marquis de Ferreris wrote the following to his wife. You cannot believe what a powerful movement is afoot against Necker among the high-placed, the financiers, the parlements, calumny, pamphlets denouncing him to the king as the most dangerous man alive. The Comte d'Artois is said to have spoken most forcefully to the king, telling him that his crown and his very life were in danger, and that Necker was a second Cromwell. By the first week of July, it was clear that the king had come round to the arguments of his wife and brother. With supposedly sufficient troops in the capital to respond to any disturbance, the king surprised everyone by announcing to them on the 10th of July that he would move against Necker a week before initially planned, and without all the troops that had been summoned from the frontier. Perhaps it was the events the day before in the National Assembly that prompted the response. From the 9th of July, the newly formed Constitutional Committee voted to draft a Declaration of the Rights of Man, followed by a constitution. Whatever the prompt, the King felt safe enough to move against Necker and the National Assembly, even if all the troops from the frontiers had not arrived. On the 11th of July, a Saturday, Necker received a note informing him of his dismissal and banishment. Informed to leave in secret, he promptly excused himself from the dinner he was about to enjoy, and by 5pm, Necker and his wife had begun their journey to Brussels in secret. The pair were shadowed by horsemen, who were instructed to arrest him immediately should he deviate from his course. The king had assumed that as the National Assembly would not meet at the following day, the 12th, as it was a Sunday, that the royal government would have plenty of time to contain any fallout. The court was clearly all too focused on the people's representatives, and not focused enough on the people themselves. 
The day after Necker's dismissal, Sunday the 12th of July, news of the demise of the people's minister, the people's champion, the people's hero, the people's messiah, reached Paris. More specifically, the news of Necker's demise reached the Palais Royal. The location which would act as the wooden barrel for this Parisian powder keg. The place which would combine both fuse and powder and allow the city to erupt into an uncontainable and historic revolt. The Palais Royal was a palace owned by the Duke of Orléans, one of the most popular men and nobles in Paris. It had originally been the personal and private residence of Cardinal Richelieu, the chief minister of Louis XIII. Before the revolution, however, the Duke of Orléans had opened it up to the public, and by the time of the Estates General, the Palais Royal was home to some 145 shops, as well as theatres and museums. More importantly, however, the Palais Royal had become not an entertainment complex as much as it had become a nest of sedition. It had become a hotbed of resistance. It was here that Arthur Young wrote in his diary about the circulation of increasingly radical pamphlets. And this is what he wrote about the increasingly radical orators who spoke in the grounds of the Palais Royal. But the coffee houses in the Palais Royal present yet more singular and astonishing spectacles. They are not only crowded within, but other expectant crowds are at the doors and windows, listening a gorge deploy to certain orators, who from chairs or tables harangue each his little audience. The eagerness with which they are heard, and the thunder of applause they receive for every sentiment of more than common hardiness or violence against the present government, cannot easily be imagined. I am all amazement at the ministry permitting such nests and hotbeds of sedition and revolt, which disseminate amongst the people, every hour, principles that by and by must be opposed with vigour, and therefore it seems little short of madness to allow the propagation at present. It's here, in the Palais Royal, an incubator for insurrection and disobedience, that the powder keg that was Paris finally exploded. Upon hearing the news of Necker's dismissal, the people of Paris began to panic. Necker's presence in the ministry had acted as a public testament to the safety of both the National Assembly and the people. His removal was interpreted as the first stage of the long-rumoured counter-revolutionary coup d'etat that was planned by the Queen, the Comte d'Artois, and the evil parasitic nobility which aided their cause. Necker's dismissal was akin to Caesar crossing the Rubicon. It was a public declaration of the conspirators' intentions, the commencement of an irreversible act against the popular assembly and the people it represented. The die was cast. Fear gripped the city almost immediately. Treasury notes began to fall in value. Stock exchanges were forced to close. Custom posts were sacked. It was in the Palais Royal, though, that the real action occurred. A well-weathered Sunday, the Palais Royal was packed with people when the news hit, and more fearful souls soon arrived as the news of Necker's demise spread throughout the city. Agitated, distressed, anxious, these words don't adequately describe a group of people who had heard the downfall of their hero and anticipated their own. As often the case in history, moments of public fear provide an opportunity for those willing to lead the sheep. Introducing a new character in our story, Camille de Mala. 
Having been trained as a lawyer, the 26-year-old man with long curly hair had instead found himself writing political pamphlets after failing to succeed in law. On the 12th of July, however, it was not the written word that catapulted him into history, but instead the spoken. By 3pm in the afternoon, more than 6,000 anxious souls packed the Palais Royal. It was here, in front of the masses, that Demolard decided to sketch his place in history, not with his pen, but with his voice. Jumping up onto a table, neither his unattractive paleness nor his usual stammer impeded his ability to mobilise the crowd. Historian Francois Mignet records the events that follows. Camille Demolard, a young man, more daring than the rest, one of the usual orators of the crowd, mounted on a table, pistol in hand, exclaiming, Citizens, there is no time to lose. The dismissal of Necker is the knell of St. Bartholomew for patriots. This very night, all Swiss and German battalions will leave the Champ de Mars to massacre us all. One resource is left, to take arms. These words were received with violent acclamations. He proposed the cockade should be worn for mutual recognition and protection. Shall they be green, he cried, the colour of hope, or red, the colour of the free order of Cincinnatus? Green, green, shouted the multitude. The speaker descended from the table and fastened the sprig of a tree to his hat. Everyone imitated him. The chestnut trees of the palace were almost stripped of their leaves, and the crowd went in tumult to the house of the sculptor Curtis. I love the theatrics of Demolard's speech. At one point in time, he stood on a table, waving his pistol around, and he pointed to his heart with his spare hand and shouted, Yes, yes, it is I who call my brothers to freedom. I would rather die than submit to servitude. It is with this amazing theatrical performance that the powder keg of Paris begins a long, multi-day explosion. The Great Revolt had begun. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. 
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. With the crowd wearing green cockades, in many cases chestnut leaves, the people of Paris began to summon their allies to the streets. Having acquired busts of Necker and the Duke of Orléans, who it was rumoured had been banished as well by the king, the masses paraded these busts around as they closed theatres, looted custom barriers and dragged more people into the streets to aid their insurrection. On the afternoon of the 12th, the mob was confronted by German cavalry intent on quelling the unrest. The confrontation did anything but. Not only were they outnumbered by the mob, but members of the French guard were defecting en masse, helping their fellow Frenchmen against the foreign troops. The next day, on the 13th of July, 3,000 French guardsmen would defect to the cause of the people, while mutiny affected the Swiss regiments, and men had to be hung for insubordination to keep them in line. As momentum swung in favour of the Parisians, the masses continued their violent unrest. On the 13th, the Saint-Lazare was raided by the mob and large amounts of grain were found inside. Shouting, bread, bread, as they forced their way inside, the masses were not disappointed. It was reported by some that 52 carts of flour were discovered, as well as oil, vinegar, wine and other staples. To a mob convinced of a noble conspiracy to hoard grain, what they found inside the abbey was proof of this counter-revolutionary plot. Such a discovery enraged minds, as much as it may have tempered hungry stomachs. As tensions rose, the crowd became rowdier, and those who were not wearing a makeshift green cockade were liable to abuse and harassment. In the four days after July the 12th, 40 of the 54 custom houses in Paris were destroyed by the mob, a reminder of just how central the price of bread is to this revolt. In the midst of this revolt, it's perhaps no surprise that historians have polarised views over who comprised this crowd, and how noble their revolt against court tyranny really was. Far from being black and white, this is another instance of very grey history. Historian Ippolite Tame describes the events as bringing the dregs of society to the surface. On the following day, the 13th, the capital appears to be given up to bandits and the lowest of the low. One of the bands who's down the gate of the Lazarists, destroys the library and clothes presses, the pictures, the windows and laboratory, and rushes to the cellars where it staves into the casks and gets drunk. 24 hours after this, about 30 of them are found dead and dying, drowned in wine, men and women, one of these being at the point of childbirth. In front of the house, the street is full of the wreckage and of ruffians who hold in their hands, some eatables, others a jug, forcing the passers-by to drink and pouring out wine to all comers. Wine runs down into the gutter and the scent of it fills the air. It is a drinking bout. Meanwhile, they carry away the grain and flour which the monks kept on hand according to law, 52 loads of it being taken to the market. Another troop comes to La Force to deliver those imprisoned for debt. A third breaks into the Grande Meuble, carrying away valuable arms and armour. Mobs assemble before the hotel of Madame de Breti and the Palais Bourbon, which they intend to ransack in order to punish their proprietaries. Monsieur de Cresneur, one of the most liberal and most respected men of Paris, but unfortunately for himself a lieutenant of the police, is pursued, escaping with difficulty, and his hotel is sacked. 
During the night between the 13th and 14th of July, the baker's shops and the wine shops are pillaged. Men of the vilest classes, armed with guns, pikes and turnpits, make people open their doors and give them something to eat and drink, as well as money and arms. Vagrants, ragged men, several of them almost naked, and most of them armed like savages and of hideous appearance, they are such as one does not remember to have seen in broad daylight. Many of them are strangers, coming from nobody knows where. Tane describes a scene of anarchy. Paris occupied by savages who lust for wine and gold. A place that rivals Moss Eisley for the title of the most wretched hive of scum and villainy. On the polar opposite end of the spectrum, however, the anarcho-communist historian Peter Kruuptgen retells a completely different version of events. Conceding unnecessary violence and banditry, Kruuptgen argues that they were merely isolated incidents. Contradicting Taine's claims, Kruuptgen declares that the majority of the mob was acting in a manner becoming of patriotic citizens. Taine and his followers, faithful echoes of the fears of the middle class, try to make us believe that, on the 13th, Paris was in the hands of thieves. But this allegation is contradicted by all contemporary evidence. There were, no doubt, wayfarers stopped by men with pikes, who demanded money to procure arms. And there were also, on the nights between the 12th and 14th, armed men who knocked at the doors of the well-to-do to ask for food and drink, for arms and money. It is also averred that there were attempts at pillage, since two credible witnesses mentioned persons executed at night between the 13th and 15th for attempts of that kind. But here, as elsewhere, Taine exaggerates. Whether the modern middle-class Republicans like it or not, it is certain that the revolutionaries of 1789 did appeal to the compromising auxiliaries of whom Mirabeau spoke. They went to the hovels on the outskirts to find them, and they were quite right to do so because even if there were a few cases of pillaging, most of these auxiliaries, understanding the seriousness of the situation, put their arms at the service of the general cause, much more than they used them to gratify their personal hatreds or to alleviate their own misery. It is at any rate certain that cases of pillage were extremely rare. On the contrary, the spirit of the armed crowds became very serious when they learned about the engagement that had been entered into by the troops in the middle classes. The men with the pikes evidently looked upon themselves as the defenders of the town, upon whom a heavy responsibility rested. Marmontel, a declared enemy of the revolution, nevertheless noticed this interesting feature. Now quoting Marmontel, The thieves themselves, seized with the general terror, committed no depredations. The armourers' shops were the only ones broken open, and only arms were stolen. Back to Kruupten. He says in his memoir, and when the people brought the carriage of the Prince de Lambesque to the Palace de la Greve to burn it, they sent back the trunk and all the effects found in the carriage to the Hotel de Ville. At the Lazarist Monastery, the people refused money and only took flour and arms and wine, which were all conveyed to the Palace de la Greve. Nothing was touched that day, either at the Treasury or at the bank, remarks the English ambassador in his account. Kruupten argues that far from servicing the dregs of society, the mobilisation of the Parisian masses served primarily to protect the general cause, to ensure the safety of the citizens of the city from an impending royal reaction. Taine and Kruupten offer starkly different views. 
but these views offer an insight to how different the events seemed to the inhabitants themselves. The middle classes, the bourgeoisie, the well-to-do, undoubtedly many of them saw anarchy and chaos. Kraupton admits that the middle classes were struck with such fear from the evenings of the 12th through to the 15th that many of them were permanently wary of the popular revolution henceforth. The lower classes, the labourers, the artisans, many of them saw it differently, however, as did the revolutionary leaders that would soon emerge from the hordes of the Saint-Culottes. To them, the common people of Paris had pushed back royal troops and, through raiding custom posts and granaries, liberated the people from the tyranny of hunger. Just how selfish, patriotic, vile and heroic the mob of Paris were is and will remain a matter of much debate, a matter of grey history. What cannot be debated, however, is what the mob did next. Having beaten back the initial attempts by royal troops to suppress their discontent, having seized grain and liberated prisoners, the people of Paris prepared for a sustained assault by royal troops. And for this, they would need arms and gunpowder. So that is what they sought. And so began the storming of the Bastille. Thank you for listening to episode 11, The Parisian Powder Cake. Now, before you go and listen to the storming of the Bastille, one of, if not the most famous events of the revolution, there is just a quick thing I would like to say. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, if you're a fan, if you would like to dabble in some more, then please spread the word. Tell someone about it. It's the best way to help Grey History. It's the best way to help me. I need all the help I can get, so if you're enjoying the show, please tell someone about it. Thank you for listening. And have a great day. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.